Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. I probably didn't ever leave the house unattended for probably two or three years because I was just sure he was going to call. So if I had to go to the store, I had to make sure that there was somebody at the house to answer the phone. When Steve went missing, I was four years old. I didn't know how to react, I guess you could say, or how to deal with it. I mean, you know, I was a kid, so who, yeah. Nobody's prepared for something like that. <laughs> well, we feel he's been kidnapped by someone who just merely wanted a child, not a ransom or anything else, just, just a child. Well, that sounds like scary. So if that is from Captive Audience, a real American horror story, all episodes are now streaming on Disney Plus. Tell us more about it. James Dempsey joins us. James, how are you today? I'm very well, Tom. How are you? I'm very well indeed. Uh, that does sound very scary. What exactly is it that's going on? So I, I think it's pretty obvious from the clip there that this is another true crime documentary, but um, it actually is so much more than that. And what I really, really liked about this documentary is um, how introspective it is on the very nature of true crime documentaries in general as well. So it tells ostensibly the story of Stephen Stainer, who was, I think, when he was seven years old, was kidnapped while walking home from school uh, in Cal- in like sm- you know small town northern California or somewhere like that, and uh, he, his parents you know rang the police and a big hunt was put on for him, but uh, he he basically disappeared and he had been kidnapped by a man and kept for seven years, and then when the when his kidnapper kidnapped another very young child, uh, maybe like a five year old boy, he took the five-year-old boy and escaped from his kidnapper and made his way back to police walking, you know, uh, for hours and hours in the dark. And upon arrival in the police station, tells the police, I don't, you know, I don't know who I am, but I know my first name is Stephen. And that story in and of itself is obviously very, very interesting. Uh, Like all true crime uh, documentaries, you know, it, they, they are, they take this terrible, horrible moment in someone's life uh, or indeed often at the end of their life and spin entertainment out of it. And what's really interesting in this one is um, they've already done that, right? So this happened. So Stephen Stainer disappeared in the seventies and returned in the early, I think in 1980. And then in 1989, um, NBC, I think it was NBC anyway, one of the American networks made a two episode mini series about him called I Know My First Name is Stephen. And it was a big hit for NBC at the time. It was nominated for four Emmys. And uh, what you get in this here is the documentary, the documentarian is this director named Jessica Dimmock. Not everybody who's involved in the Stephen Stainer story is still alive or available to talk to uh, her today. So she was able to get the tapes that were used by the writer of the, uh, you know, the two episode miniseries about him in which he interviewed all these people. So she had their voices on tape. But but from that, then you get this really interesting thing where you see the screenwriter changing the story for dramatic purpose. Right. So the underlying kind of thesis put forward by this documentary is how real are true crime stories ever, right? Because we have the Stainer family telling their version of the of events. We then have them telling their version of events to a writer who then changes them to make it more dramatic and more interesting. 
And then this becomes a hugely successful and much lauded drama on TV. And then that becomes the story because that's what people see and that's what people believe. So there's so this is just a really fascinating and like interesting look because it moves the ball along a bit, you know, from a true crime documentary like true crime. I am, um, you know, had its zenith, I guess, around the time of serial podcast. Right. But I mean, it's here to stay forever in, as, a, as a genre, but it is fraught with lots of critical um issues in the sense of we don't know how true the, true the story is often it's it turns you know a really really tragic events into spectacle and entertainment with often without the wishes of of the survivors or 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 their uh, you know their families or or whoever it is and here we get that story but things take quite a turn in the third and final episode uh, and it's kind of uh, it's sort of frustrating that it happens but they can't ignore it so and i won't say what it is because okay. it'll amount for a huge story but or a spoiler rather but um effectively the stainer family goes through an awful lot in 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 a 30 year period and it ends very it ends with some very tragic st- stuff as well and the third episode somewhat feels a bit tacked on because it doesn't fit as neatly in to how interesting or how um how how sort of introspective as i said before the the first two episodes are they're just they're kind of like this meta commentary on on true crime and the third episode which cannot be ignored because if if anyone watches it they'll understand immediately it's it's a very dark uh, mm-hmm. end to the story but it doesn't fit quite as neatly into the first two so it somewhat takes away i think personally from from the first two but it also falls into its own trappings so the first two episodes are all about how true crime can spin a narrative that may not be the truth and the third episode sort of does that itself now i don't know if okay. that's intentional or accidental but i can't go into it without te- without ruining okay. it for the audience but but all in all an absolutely fascinating story expertly told and just really makes you think about the whole genre in general that genre i will always associate with making a merger which yeah. uh, i found just i couldn't believe how exciting tv had become yeah and and every episode would end with just the most startling <laughs> twist where you'd be shouting at your tv is that the bit that they're kind of i i i, I don't know I, I think if i'm being kind to them i'd say that i always felt they weren't manipulating the truth but maybe manipulating the time at which you uh, you discovered things you know, yeah, they, they were messing with that. Does that does this kind of say that no, it's it's worse than that? Uh, so it, it, you know, it's quite interesting because the Stainer family, you know, appear in this documentary. The surviving members of the Stainer family, anyway, and we hear an awful lot from uh, from Stephen's mother and from his own from his two children who d- who don't really know him because um, well for various reasons. But anyway, so um, what's interesting is they talk about how much they enjoyed the time with the screenwriter of this, you know, of this miniseries that they thought he was incredibly respectful. They have nothing but respect for him and the work that he did. But it's in, like there's a really kind of telling moment where they uh, where this, you, you know, you hear the screenwriter talking about how he needs to humanize Stephen's mother much more because she's very stoic and he's admiring how stoic she is as a person that she never gave up faith that Stephen would come back, but she wasn't, you know, bawling, crying on, on screen every time she was seen. She was just very, uh, she held herself with great composure in any of the interviews that she gave. And in the, in the movie, then they have this scene where she's like putting a Christmas decoration on the tree and it, his name is on it and she starts, you know, bawling, crying. And look, I'm not saying that she yeah. didn't obviously have moments of, of of great distress when her son was missing for seven years absolutely she did but they they made her a much more 
sentimental person than she appears to have been in all the interviews that they did with her because it's better TV. Okay, it's kind of massaging, really, isn't it? Exactly, um, yeah. So uh, the director gets the two actors who played the brothers back in. Uh, yes. So yeah. So and so so uh, Corin Nemec he played Stephen Stainer in the TV show uh, of him, and then uh, Todd Eric Andrews he played Carrie, who's his brother, and she gets them to read out the dialogue that the two men uh, made in their interviews with the screenwriter, because neither of them are available to do interviews today, and it is a very kind of. Um, she doesn't ask them to perform. She says, "Look, you don't need to act; as you can just read it." But they are actors and they perform <laughs> to varying degrees of success. But it's a very kind of knowing nod to this whole idea of what version of the truth are we getting in any story? Because obviously these are not the real men. These are actors who played yeah. these men as younger men, but they are the real words that they made. So it's this very kind of circuitous, uh, open-ended um, mediation on the whole nature of true crime. And I, I have to admit, I really, really liked it. Oh, it sounds great. I'm, I'm surprised to see it's on Disney Plus, which um, when launched first seemed to be very <laughs> much the home of uh, Bambi and equally <laughs> innocent sweet type levels of programming as far away from the other streaming services you can get but the, the lines are just getting blurred aren't they? But, but um, you see originally it was made for Hulu in the US which is owned by Disney and where it's where Disney so it, it, I guess it's on Star which is the you know the, the vertical or branch of Disney Plus where adult programming is kept. Yeah. Adult isn't perhaps not the right adjective there but anyway uh, the above PG and 12s yes. uh, uh, programming I, swear, yeah. I think it's where I'm watching uh, the, the Sex Pistol story at the moment I'm still watching that um, that sounds great I'll, I'll definitely be watching that our second programme to talk about is on Apple TV and it's called Blackbird we'll take a quick listen to a clip from it you want to be out of prison yesterday right and the feeling's only gotten worse since we dangled this carrot correct like a clock tick tick ticking away right don't let the clock rule you don't approach Hall too early or he'll know we sent you for him are you Besides the warden and Dr. Zickerman, I'm your only other safety line. When I visit, you treat me like your girlfriend. Slip me tongue, grab my ass, whatever. Grab your ass? Yes, cop a feel. Do what it takes. Should we practice now? If shit hits the fan, you get to Zickerman or Warden Price and have them call me ASAP. And Jimmy, do not get any time added to your sentence, understand? If you get time tacked to your sentence, it supersedes our deal. It will be beyond our control. You'll be stuck doing Springfield time. What if I have to defend myself? Don't maim anyone. And don't get caught. Don't get caught. Uh, Blackbird, new episodes every Friday on Apple uh, TV. This is from Dennis Lehane, the man behind Mystic River and Gone Baby uh, Gone and The Wire and Mr. Mercedes. That's quite a track record Dennis has. He does, yeah. Uh, he's a novelist, uh, so he wrote the novels of Mr. River and Gone Baby Gone, and he's was very much involved in the adaptations of them. But his his recent TV credit, I guess, would be would be Mr. Mercedes, and it stars Taron Egerton, who people would know as Elton John uh, in the, the uh, Rocketman, you know, biopic of him. And it is uh, well coming after uh, Captive Audience. I say this one comes with the most. Uh, dubious of of uh you know subtitles which is inspired by a true story which is always a very unusual mm-hmm. <laughs> past participle to be using at the beginning of your sentence so it is a uh, so it's about Taron Egerton plays Jimmy Keane in the 90s right so it's set in the 90s in uh I think it's New Jersey and he is this 
uh, failed high school footballer who has turned to drug dealing uh, very successfully until, of course, he gets caught and goes down. And when he's in prison, he gets offered the chance because he's this very charming, affable, easygoing guy. He gets offered a chance by a group of very desperate investigators to swap prisons and become sort of buddies or, or cellmates, I'm not quite sure, with a man named Larry Hall. And both Jimmy Keane and Larry Hall are real people. Uh, Larry Hall um, is, well, he has never, well, he, he, he has, he's in prison uh, and he is suspected, but they cannot prove, but they have great suspicion that he has killed all these women. And Larry Hall is played by Paul Walter Hauser. People would know him from lots of different things. Most recently, he was in Itania. Uh, he was in a couple of seasons of Cobra Kai. And he was Richard Jewell in the Clint Eastwood director, Richard, Richard Jewell. And he is this mutton chop, although I think uh, sideburns might be more correct. Or as he goes out, goes to great lengths to point out, burn sides is even mm. more correct. Um, wearing... Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the nicest word, unusual, uh, unusual person with unusual ways of thinking about things and not very pleasant at that. Okay. And uh, the problem is that we have two shows in one here, right? We have one show which stars Taron Egerton as this prisoner trying to learn, you know, trying to wheedle his way into the life of someone else and get the info from him. And on the other hand, we have this police procedural with uh, Greg Kinnear playing Brian Miller, who's this investigator. And the woman we heard in the in the clip there is Sepide Moafi, who is an Iranian-American. And she's, an, you know, she's sort of uh, Jimmy's handler throughout this whole process. And the pl- police procedural side of it is uh, probably the, the weaker aspect of it, simply because it gets... For me, anyway, it, in how it was filmed and styled and everything that is going on in terms of the storytelling draws unfavorable uh, comparisons to Netflix's much-missed and really excellent Mindhunter, which was about the sort of FBI's um, development of what a serial killer is. And, and yeah, it's a great uh, series. Absolutely fantastic. Every episode was incredibly tense and built on each one, and yet... It even had jokes sometimes. So yes. I, I just absolutely loved it. And here you have, uh, you know, I, I, for me, the, the main issue is how um, kind of over the top weirdo creepy Paul Walter Hauser is going in his performance, right? It draws just very negative comparisons to all of the real serial killers that you see in, in Mindhunter performed often by actors you would have never seen in anything before and who were chilling in their performances and their interactions with, uh, you know, with, with the two FBI's going, FBI agents going around interviewing them. But here it's sort of, it's, it's just played up for spectacle and it just sort of left a bad taste in my mouth and all in all I found it overwhelming and, and a bit silly, right? The bits with Taron Egerton were fun, and and uh, he he's uh, he's a he's a great actor who who I think has yet to get his real kind of shot mm. at it. Certainly, certainly he was fantastic in Rocket Man, and if Bohemian Rhapsody hadn't come out the year before, I think Rocket Man would have been a much bigger hit than it turned out to be critically and yeah. in the awards in the awards season races. But um, all in all, this is going to be a six parter, a, a one and done series because it is, as I said, inspired by a true story. It is it, what Apple has that no, well, what Apple has that Netflix now wishes it had is all this money, right? So every single one of their productions looks 
money. Yeah, they really do. You really see it, don't you, in everything they do? You um, do. Very good. That's Blackbird. New episodes every Friday on Apple TV. Now, you mentioned uh, Netflix and our final one today is from Netflix. It's called uh, Boo Bitch. All episodes now streaming. Let's take a listen to it. Well, from everything we've gathered, we know, A, your dad needs to upgrade his technology because unlike you, DVDs are not coming back to life. And B, there's nothing to work with. Okay, how am I supposed to know what to do if every movie, TV show, and website makes up their own rules about ghosts? Okay, what are the facts? What are the hard, cold facts? Which Settle. Breathe. If you can. Okay, I, I, I know you are stressed and anxious for concrete answers, but we do have something to work with. There are a few common denominators, like ghosts can lower the temperature. And sometimes mess with electricity. Blow out candles. Be sensed by animals. And sometimes give sexy massages on pottery wheels. That wasn't a common denominator. But it was incredibly informative. True. That scene was filled with highly analytical paranormal data. Maybe we should rewatch it. Yes. I can't believe I'm dead. Well, I'm tired listening to that, James. I'll tell you the truth. <laughs> tell me more. Okay, so this is uh, Boo Bitch. It's written by Aaron Ehrlich, who wrote Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which is one of my favorite shows, definitely, of the last 10 years. And Lauren Younger-Rich, who wrote Awkward for MTV, which I have never seen. And I guess if you're in Gen Z or Gen Z is adjacent, uh, you will know the lead of this. She is Lana Condor. She's probably better known as Lara Jean from To All the Boys I, L- I Loved Before, which was a huge, huge kind of um, teen hit for, for Netflix. And often these YA hits reach wider audiences than just the ones they're intended for. And she plays Erica Vu, who is this uh, schoolgirl in her last weeks of high school. And she and her friend Gia realize that they have, uh, they, they do a book smart. They realize that they have been playing it safe and they decide to go out on a high. And one of them, well, Erica gets uh, killed when she's squashed by, a, a you know, a, a bison, not a, a deer or something. And then she's a ghost and they have to figure out what to do in order to help her cross to the other side. And all in all, the the strangest thing about it is how tonally odd it is, because, you know, we have these two schoolgirls, one of whom is dead, trying to cross over to the other side, and they're not in any way bereft or worried about this. They're not, you know, they're not... Uh, pining for the loss of their life. Inconvenienced by it. (laughs) They're slightly inconvenienced by it because they have to figure out various different things. But... um, Here's the thing, right? So this is not made for me, a 30-something-year-old man, right? This is made for young audiences, uh, teens and and lower, I would say. Although there's a, bit, a good bit of cursing in it and nods to uh, more adults. That's everywhere these days, James. No avoiding but, it. But all in all, I thought it... In, in every episode there was a there was at least one joke that landed and the episodes were only 22 minutes long. Oh. So So if you are looking for a very, very easy watch this has some charm to it its main issue is it, it's going you know what it's going for I, I don't think it quite manages to achieve it, it ha- you know the storyline is fairly obvious you can tell the twists before they arrive uh, it's nothing you haven't seen before but it is buoyed on by the charm of its performers Lana Condor as I said who plays Erica and Zoe Margaret Coletti who plays her friend Gia they have excellent chemistry with each other when they when they are you know chatting it is you know Gilmore girl-esque I would say with, right. the of, with the speed of their their uh, you know their delivery it's not as witty or as clever as as Gilmore girls was or and remains but 
look, it's an easy watch, and it's definitely not. It's it's definitely not going to be. It's definitely not going to get a second season. It's going to be a one and done thing based on what happens at the end. So if you're looking for something fairly easy, go with this. Yeah, you're you're less than over over enthusiastic. I can <laughs> yes. tell, James. Just you know, your tail <laughs> is not wagging here very very clearly. Um, James, thank you very much for that indeed. And there we go. Twenty minutes talking about TV, and neither was mentioned Love Island. Isn't that absolutely amazing? <laughs> I haven't seen a single episode this year. Sadly, I've walked through the room where it is on. <laughs> there is no avoiding it. Uh, James, thanks very much. Talk thanks, to you again Sam. soon, James. Bye-bye. James, there on TV and the radio. If you have recommendations for us, let us know. Five three one six is the text number. But after the break, and we're talking to a fascinating man, Chaplain Michael Zuzman is his name, and uh, he talks to. Uh, prisoners in America who are on death row. One of them is sentenced to die this coming um, two days' time. Uh, before he goes, though, he wants to give his organs away um, and is currently being stopped in that pursuit. We'll find out more after this. Moncrief. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Weekdays at 2 pm on News Talk.